0: Hello and welcome to episode number 288. Every time I say those numbers, I'm like, that can't be right. But no, episode 288 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. With me today is a fellow blogger. Today I'm talking to Elizabeth Lane of Cooking Up Romance. This is a podcast episode that was inspired by Twitter. And if it's on Twitter, it's sort of like oral history, but not quite. Either way, I... Twitter history thread that Elizabeth wrote went viral within the romance community online so I asked her to come and talk to me on the podcast about it. Elizabeth Lane is the blogging and cooking genius behind cooking up romance so we start by talking about food and romance and blogging her own recipe development and her reading reviewing cooking and blogging process there's a lot involved Then we turn to her Twitter thread, which was about romance generations of writers. It began as her own investigation as to when GLBTQ characters began to appear in published romances, which led to her questioning what the terms old guard or new generation of writers really meant, and then led her to looking at where different writers emerged from category or fanfic or other places. Elizabeth's thread turned into a very active conversation online and began to branch out as author Melissa Blue traced the history of black romance authors and Corey Alexander examined trans and queer characters. Then Mina V. Esquerra, who was a podcast guest some weeks back, traced the evolution of Filipino romance authors. There is a lot to examine in the history of romance as a genre. And I am always learning from the people who examine it from different perspectives. So I hope this conversation is interesting for you as well. And if after you listen, you have questions or suggestions, or you want to share your perspective of the history of the romance genre or what you see as interesting patterns or paths within that history, you should email me at spjpodcastgmail.com. You can also record a voice memo and email it to me. Please do not worry. You will sound fabulous. Now we have two really cool sponsors for this episode and for the transcript. So let me start with the podcast sponsor. This episode is b- being brought to you by Grant Station. Are you passionate about a cause? Do you by chance work with or support a nonprofit organization? You probably do. Most nonprofit organization staff are women between the ages of 30 and 60. So this may very well be all or part of your wheelhouse. So heads up, you're going to want to listen to this. At GrantStation, we provide the tools for your nonprofit organization to find new grant sources, build a strong grant-seeking program, and write winning grant proposals. Do you struggle to identify new funding sources? Let GrantStation do the preliminary work for you. We profile a wide range of funders that accept unsolicited requests, including foundations, corporate giving programs, faith-based grant makers, association grant programs, giving circles, and more. Does the lack of time limit your ability to submit grant requests? We have tutorials on creating time and making space for grant proposals. Do you have a grant strategy for 2018? Well, we offer a three-pronged approach to help you develop an overall strategic plan to adopting a powerful grant-seeking program. And what's GrantStation, you ask? I'm glad you asked that question. The GrantStation U.S. Charitable Giving Database was developed by grant seekers for grant seekers almost 20 years ago. The goal was and continues to be to offer a database that is carefully researched, easy to use, and continually updated. Our narrative approach allows us to include nuanced details about each grantmaker's funding priorities, geographic focus, and application procedure, which sets us apart from other services which tend to rely on data and statistics. Instead of combing through search results that include sources which are by invitation only, GrantStation allows you to find the grant programs which best suit your organizational needs, including federal grant programs and sources which accept unsolicited letters of inquiry. GrantStation also welcomes you with a clean, user-friendly interface that quickly and easily brings you the information that you need. Our job, is to profile a wide range of grant makers open to supporting the work that you do. Your job is to make sure you have access to those grant makers. So you can get an annual membership for just $159 and get funded with GrantStation. That is correct. A membership for only $159 for a limited time. Plus, receive our gift to you, free attendance to Gene Block's classic webinar, 60 Plus Great Fundraising Ideas in 90 Minutes. You will be inspired. You can learn more at grantstation.com. And thank you to GrantStation for sponsoring this episode. Now, each episode of this podcast receives a transcript, which is hand compiled by Garlic Knitter. Thank you, Garlic Knitter. And this week, the podcast transcript is brought to you by A Duke in the Night by Kelly Bowen. If you like Sarah McLean and Tessa Dare, you will love this Regency romance. August Faulkner has returned with his eye on expanding his business empire. He is a duke, a scoundrel, and a titan of business, and he wears his roguish reputation as a badge of honor. Clara Hayward is the respected headmistress and above reproach, but ten years ago she shared a scandalous waltz with August and despite herself has never forgotten the feeling of his arms. Can these opposites find a second chance at romance? RT Book Reviews has raved, what a way to start the Devils of Dover series. A Duke in the Night by Kelly Bowen is on sale now wherever books are sold. You can find out more at kellybowen.net or forever-romance.com. And I will have information about A Duke in the Night in the show notes, as well as links to the thread that I'm talking about, all of the Twitter threads that emerged from this thread. There is a lot to enjoy about this episode. Now, I do have compliments, which is another thing that I enjoy tremendously. To Anne T., you are more transfixing and entertaining than baby animals in hand-knit socks in all different sizes. And to Diane L., your smile, your laugh, your hugs, and your kindness are your best accessories, which is why you always look fabulous. If you would like a handcrafted compliment, I invite you to have a look at our podcast Patreon at patreon.com slash smartbitches for very small pledges of as little as a dollar a month. You can help support the show, commission transcripts for episodes that don't have them, and keep the show going into the future. I also wanted to thank some of the Patreon folks personally. So thanks to Mary, Emily, Anne, Renee, Karina, and Rachel for being part of the Patreon community. And if you would like to have a look at your options, please do at patreon.com slash smartbitches. Are there other ways to support the podcast? Of course there are. You can leave a review wherever you listen or however you listen. And however you listen is awesome with me. You can tell a friend. You can subscribe. You can do whatever works for you. But if you are hanging out with me each week and listening to the show, thank you for that. Our music is provided by Sassy Outwater. She and Ferdinand would like you to know that this is the Pete Bog Fairies because I will never get tired of it. And I will have information at the end of the show as to which track this is and where you can buy their new album. And of course, I will end the show with a terrible joke because I am a terrible human being and these jokes are so bad. But without any further delay, let's get to this interview. I want to welcome Elizabeth Lane on with the podcast.
1: Uh, I'm Elizabeth Lane. Um, I write a blog called Cooking Up Romance. I pair um, romance reviews with um, recipes. Um, which is really only tangential to um, sort of what we're talking about today. Um, I have been, I guess, blogging for, um, I had to look it up, almost four years now, I can't believe it. Um, But I've been reading romance since um, I was 15, so that's an embarrassingly long time. And I started out sort of reading, you know, historical romance, and then sort of got into category romance of the early 1990s, so that's sort of more related
0: to um to where we are today. So with your blog Cooking Up Romance, you read a romance, review it and pair it with a recipe.
1: I do. I um I'm a professional baker um and I love to cook. I always have um, and I love to read romance. And one of the things that I think is funny about, um, about romance is that I think, you know, food is so integral to the sort of dating and courting yes. and, and, um, process that, um, that there's often a lot of food in romance novels. And so it was sort of a fun, and really kind of a way to engage my own creativity sort of within bounds, um, of taking a recipe that, you know, that either the, the characters, uh, make or eat in the book. Um, and then, um either inventing it or if the author was nice enough to include the recipe which sometimes they do um, just making that. And sometimes <laughs> and sometimes it's not as it's not as literal as all that sometimes there isn't food but you know something about the setting or a character I had had one there's a um, a trans romance called a, a matter of disagreement by e. E. Ottoman. it's terrific. Um, where the character smells like lavender and Earl Grey tea. And I went, hmm. <laughs> so I made a cookie. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, so, you know, the, it's not, not always literal, but, but frequently as yeah, something they literally ate in the book.
0: That's very cool. Now, how long does it take you to read and review and then create the recipe? No, don't ask me that question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it depends on the book. You know, a hundred
1: and fifty-page category romance is a little different than a you know five hundred-page historical epic. I mean, I do read pretty quickly, but um, you know, I would say probably you know I guess five to ten hours to finish a book, I guess. And then, I mean, if it depends on how well the recipe goes, but usually another five to ten to develop a recipe, depending on how many times I have to make it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, writing writing the review, writing up the recipe, editing the photos. It's, it's, yep. <laughs> yeah, it's a, process. It's, a lab- it's
0: a labor of love is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you're right. Food and romance go together really, really well. And I saw on Instagram that you got really cool lighting for the holidays. Is that right? Was it a, was it a holiday I, gift?
1: It was. Yeah. Um, my husband um, picked up a set of lighting for me for Christmas because, you know, every, every year I, um, when daylight savings ends, we yeah. um, either we either eat the dinner that I had planned on making the next day because I can't photograph it. Um, <laughs> so things you know, I make something and 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 then have to say, um, "Honey, we're ordering pizza because I um, don't have time to photograph what I made for dinner." <laughs> 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 right. So I, it might have been slightly self-interested, but um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty great present because now I can take pictures anytime, which is amazing. And the lights are really powerful. They really are. They're really bright. It really looks like daylight when I turn them on. That's awesome.
0: So the reason I wanted to connect with you is not just to talk about your blog, which is supremely cool, but the thread that you started on Twitter a couple of days ago. It's funny how it's only been like five days and yet it seems like last year because so much happens. Time is a very strange thing now, right?
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Social media time is, is very much its own beast.
0: It's fast and it's exhausting. So you started a be. thread based on a conversation about romance generations of readers and where the different groups of romance readers sort of come from, how they enter the genre, what's their gateway. Can you tell me about what got you started doing this research? Because this is considerable research.
1: Right. Well, you know, I was, I was actually, it's funny. Um, I, I have to kind of go back a little bit. Um, so in, uh, I've always had sort of an appreciation for, for history and context and kind of where things come from. And that's just, it's, it's a fundamental, you know, part of my personality, Um and um and i think um so when i when i came back to romance and sort of saw and this was um 2014 i guess right yeah 2014 um and i saw that you know there were ebooks and you know, that there were a lot of (laughs) ebooks. Um, and, and there was sort of, it was, it was post Fifty Shades. And so, you know, I started reading like Charlotte Stein and Kara McKenna and all these wonderful writers that, um, had completely, were totally new and appeared on the scene since the last time I'd read Romance, which was, you know, the mid 2000s, I guess, maybe, um, after I, you know, graduated from college. So where the Twitter conversation started was that, um, You know, a a person that I follow on Twitter follows me um, had had asked about who um, of the old guard of romance writers um, include LGBTQ plus representation in their books. And and it's funny. I don't know uh, Anna uh, Canino fluid, who um, she has her own blog, and she also reviews for um, for RT. Um, mm-hmm. ha- I we, I have this sort of mental picture of the two of us looking at each other and saying, you know, well, who's old guard? <laughs> who do we right. consider old guard? <laughs> <mean>? <laughs> what does that mean anymore? Um And and so you know, I, I and so what happened was is really I, I was thinking about this over the course of, you know, four hours and yoga and driving home. Um, and, and trying to sort of tease out the concept of, you know, new versus old guard. And what does that mean? Um, and um, so really, it started out sort of thinking in terms of generations of writers, and specifically, I think with through the lens of who might or might not have had significant LGBTQ representation in their books. Right. Um, where would that have started within sort of I mean, I hate to call it mainstream romance publishing, but you know, within you know, Harlequin or Avon or, or the the
0: big traditional publishers. Right. Right. Mainstream also indicates availability. It's not just the publishers, it's also where those books are. Right. And
1: where would they have been placed within a romance section?
0: Yeah. And Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's it's hard to narrow a whole thing down to one word like old guard or mainstream. But yes, I fully I'm with you. I understand all of the words. Keep going. <laughs> right.
1: So um so so where it's so, so I really where I, I didn't go back to, you know, say Austin or Hare or the Victoria Holt or Mary Stewart or wrote Gothics in the nineteen fifties. Um where I was started was really with um The Flame in the Flower, Kathleen Woodows on the historical side and then Harlequin Presents in nineteen seventy-three. You know, with Anne Mather and Anne Hampson and Violet Winspear, Um, just because um, those those forms are uniquely recognizable to a modern romance reader. Um, right. The, right. So there, um, you know, Harlequin Presents obviously still exists. Historical romance has changed somewhat. I mean, I think mostly in terms of sort of consent and heroin agency and those sorts of things. But um, but, um, but I think people still have, you know, living readers, living writers still have very fond memories of, you know, picking up The Flame and the Flower or some of those other books and, um, and really enjoying that um, at the same level that we enjoy romance as readers now. So, you know, and then, then I sort of had to try to figure out, okay, well, then beyond that, who, and I kind of thought, well, maybe I can just break it out into normal sort of generation, sort of 15 year blocks of time. And I quickly figured out that that wasn't going to work. Um, romance just changes too quickly. Um, I think it adapts. It really you know, with, does. Yeah, with readers and with with outside societal forces, like uh, Sarah McLean pointed that out sort of later in the thread, that you can sort of track along with social, sort of social changes, some of the changes that happened in romance. um, And, um, and so I, I sort of ended up with, you know, small blocks of time where the writers that I, just from my own reading and from things I've read about them, wondered if maybe that representation for back, going back to the original question would, would have been present. And so I thought of people like, you know, Nora Roberts and Susan Elizabeth Phillips, um, who I actually didn't realize she started writing historical romance, <laughs> just like, um, like, like Victoria Dahl, which we don't even think about that in terms of that being that something that she wrote, but um, apparently right. that she really did start. And actually, um, so uh, another thing that happened, so later in the thread, Joanne Ross, who's been writing romance for 30 years, um, mentioned that that one of those reasons is that s- uh, single title um, contemporary romance just didn't exist at that moment. Uh, either you wrote categories, you wrote historical romance, and that was it. That was all readers wanted.
0: Or that was all readers could find. Well, that's also true. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> so who knows, chicken or the egg, how, what, what started first? Right, exactly. And then, you know, sort of, there we're sort of a period between, like, the, you know, the flame and the flower, and, like, really, like, 1987, um, where that's really all there was um, was historical romance and category romance. Single title wasn't really a thing, and Joanne and I kind of tried to tease that out. Maybe until like 1987, and the really big ones didn't start hitting until 1992, 1991, 1992. Um, or Christina Dodd, Jennifer Cruze, Suzanne, Ma- uh, S- Susan Mallory—they all started in you know in the early 1990s, right? So some of the really really big single title. Um, folks didn't start until, until then. So I, I, that was really sort of, just, I don't want to lay out the entire timeline cause people can read the thread, but, um, but, but I, but, the, but that was the, that was the, the genesis of the conversation trying to figure out and maybe because it, it, it would seem um, instinctive to me that we would maybe not have seen a lot of um, LGBTQ plus representation in the historical romance of the time period, for sure. (laughs) Um, But then, you know, where then did it start becoming something that we saw in terms of single title contemporary, or or honestly, category romance, or, you know, uh, other sorts of things. So that was really what I was trying to do.
0: (laughs) Right, of course. One of the interesting things that I noticed is that you draw this timeline of years, who debuted in what year, what were they writing? And how did that where does the where do the breaks ch- come where do the where do the changes sort of pop out at you when you lay this all out on a timeline which is fascinating to me because i don't remember numbers so i don't remember years and mm-hmm. i you you mentioned that bold stroke started in 2004 and i was like no way but of course it did it, i it, i think it's yeah. always been there and my my sense of time is so terrible that i look at that and i think oh wow that's a really long time ago but it's also not time is weird So one of the things that jumped out at me was that, one, you start talking about new school and old school, which I find fascinating because that's something I think a lot about. But also that the divide that you point out of authors who didn't come through category or regencies and come through fanfic, that really just made my Mm. brain explode. How did you pull those Mm. two things out?
1: Well, I think I was looking mainly the way that I, at least in terms of the way I was thinking about this thread, the resources that I was using were, you know, um, Wikipedia author lists and Amazon for, you know, publication dates, and then also the Rita Awards, because I think that's, you know, they're not perfect and they certainly don't represent, you know, everything that was going on in romance or, you know, there are plenty of, you know, downsides to looking at romance from that perspective. But, um, But it does sort of tell you some things about, you know, what was valued in that moment in romance publishing
0: or what was profitable.
1: Yeah. Well, right, yeah. Um, and, and I noticed that, you know, for example, that the Rita categories really sort of expanded quite a bit. you know, it was started in 1980, um, R- Romance Writers of America that runs the Rita mm-hmm. awards, um, was started in 1980. And then the, the categories in terms of the Rita's really sort of expand dramatically in 1992. Um, and, and a lot of those expansion categories were in that single title romance, single title contemporary romance, you know, subgenre. And what was interesting to me about that was that you know I'm looking at you know people who started in 1981, 1983, in 1992, now winning a lot of those Rita Awards. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that sort of struck me as being sort of one sort of wave of 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 romance writers. Um, and then, and then going forward, I, I tried to say, okay, well, when did that stop? When did that stop being a thing that category romance writers would move to single title romance and then win Rita's later yes. down, down the road? And it hasn't. <laughs> it, it, in some ways, it, it really, in some ways it really still hasn't. I think, um, you know, uh, people like Jill Shalvis, I think are a perfect example. She started writing category romance. She's right. still- one of the big names in terms of single title romance. And I think that's true of a lot of the New York Times bestsellers too, which is sort of the, you know, Um, but as I pointed out in the thread, when you look at sort of the like Goodreads year end winners or nominees, um, when you look at bookstagram, sort of, you look at that hashtag on Instagram Mm -hmm. or you look at sort of the Amazon bestseller lists in terms of romance. And that's not people who came up through category category romance.
0: Well, I think one of the reasons for that may also be that the pool of judges in RWA are probably still majority category writers because you have to be a member of PAN to be a judge in the readers. and you have to have um, met the requirements to join PAN in order to be a member and then maintain your membership and then be a judge. So the pool of judges, I suspect, I cannot verify this, may be a larger percentage of category authors. So they're judging a book. Um, with their own writing experience and that may emphasize category like writing. And I don't know when that will shift yeah, or if it will switch. Yeah. And it, and
1: honestly, it it may not. I mean, I think one of not. the things that, you know, one of the ha- things that happened is that, you know, a lot of self-published writers, I'm not, you know, some of them sort of, I think in the early days felt like, you know, okay, well, I, I feel like I don't count in this space. Right. Um, and, And so, you know, and and I think it it, it was, it it may be that some of those people just never join RWA. So it may never, so that, so those Rita Award categories may never,
0: may never really change. And they may not fully reflect everything that is romance because you can't really develop an award system that celebrates and acknowledges all of the different kinds of of romance. I mean, I'm exhausted just trying to think of the logistics of making that happen.
1: (laughs) I think just this year, now that the the Rita nominee books are are being distributed, I think through through PDFs rather than yep. print, yep. right? So, I mean, who knows how that will change? Um, exactly, how it's that, that that, might, that could know. change the readers, right? Yeah.
0: So you noticed the the divide almost or the contrast between the Rita winners and finalists and Amazon bestsellers and goodreads year-end nominees and there was more fanfic on one side than on the other well
1: i think one of the things that happened you know in 2007 the kindle was introduced Mm -hmm. um and then you know 2000 i think what was it oh 2011 was was 50 shades publication Mm -hmm. um and then uh, there was sort of an explosion 2011 2012 of you know Mm self-publishing um and at least self publishing is you know noticed by you know <laughs> um the sort of trade publications that follow romance um, right, right right and um and mainstream media um and certainly, there were things going on way long before that in terms of of self publishing, but it wasn't you know the force that you know, i mean I was sat in this thread e l James has i think two point three million likes on <laughs> on Facebook, which is astonishing to me um but um but yeah you know i think one of the things that i've noticed is that um that yeah you get i think authors who I, I, and i can't say for sure and this is sort of where the this this um logic breaks down it's i think more instinct than than evidence at this point right. um although there've been some anecdotal um points made um by a few people that um that when they were you know reading uh new adult romance Um, back a few years ago that it seemed like, you know, a a very popular fic would show Mm -hmm. up. And then, you know, six to 12 months later, it was an N.A. novel. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, And so uh, and so I do think you do you get some of that. I think also, too, in in the LGBTQ plus space, um, you know, a lot of that slash uh, fiction, some of those writers um came out of mm-hmm. uh, came out of fan fiction rather than coming up through any kind of category romance <laughs> um market which there there still isn't really one for um you know for mm or yes. anything else
0: that's very true oh, excuse me just a sec. Hang on just a second sure my dogs are with me and um if there is another human or dog within like a 200-yard area of the front window, I need to know about it. it they have to inform me immediately. <laughs> it is a very important thing. So I beg your pardon. I had to tell them to hush. Now, yeah, one no of problem. the th- one of the things I found so interesting about your thread was not only that you laid out all of this history and plotted this out, like what does your notebook look like? Was this like a whole ream of paper? Oh.
1: No, this isn't a notebook. This is all in my head.
0: <laughs> what? And, so, and, and this is where I was this is where I You're was going earlier which is me. what you are sh- it's in well, your head. Head. Oh my god your, your brain is amazing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well I don't I I don't remember the specific dates but I do sort of have this like catalog of you know I kind of know who wrote what for what imprint and and I sort of sort of know like when the imprint was introduced. And I, I don't know. I, I, yes, okay. So my my brain's a strange place. Um, but um, but this is kind amazing. of where I was going earlier, which is that <laughs> that I when I started back in 2014, um, and I, I sort of it, my immediate um, instinct was to go back to some of the things that you know after I'd read people like Charlotte Stein and Kara McKenna and all these other amazing you know new writers, um, was to go back and start looking at some of the things that I'd read as a teenager, which, um, frankly, since I started, I mean, Julie Garwood isn't isn't too too bad. But when you go back to someone like Catherine Coulter. Um, oh, dear God. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a slightly different story. Um, but then also, you know, Sandra Brown, and, and some of those people who really sort of strongly informed, you know, my, my personal views on, you know, a lot, on, well, you know, on sex and relationships. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, for the better. (laughs) That got me thinking, okay, well, what happened between, you know, that and now and then also what happened before that in 1995, or whenever it was that I started reading romance. And, um, and so I picked up some, you know, 1970s um, categories. And in, I mean, I fell in love with them. Uh, They're so fascinating, from just sort of a sociological perspective, because you get sort of the contrast between you know um a, a fairly especially in in terms of harlequin a fairly conservative um publisher famously conservative um all the heroines had to be virgins and you know yes. the the men were all sort of overbearing and it was still sort of an outgrowth of the you know doctor nurse yes. uh, frequently romance of you know betty neals and those sort of
0: people right significant um, power and, um, differentials um,
1: <laughs> right sure and and then um, but then also this sort of straining toward feminism. Yeah. Straining toward Betty Friedan and the ERA and and some of the interesting social developments that we're having in term happening in terms of women's rights in the 1970s. Um, and particularly uh Carol Mortimer. Um, I, I was reading Harlequins in Order for a while, at least the ones that I could find. And when Carol Mortimer came on the scene, um, there's an almost palpable shift between her and Violet Winspear and Charlotte Lamb and some of the people who come before her so much less judgment in terms of, you know, premarital sex, Mm -hmm. children out of wedlock, um, heroines making the first move even <laughs> <laughs> things that we don't even question now but that um, but that you know gosh reading you know reading uh, those reading a Charlotte Lamb and a and a Carol Mortimer from 19 you know 74 78 whenever she started um it is astonishing it's astonishingly different it really um, is. And so, uh, you know, this sort of – this really informed my interest in, in romance history and trying to sort of figure out, you know, where 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 did all of this start? And anyway, and I got to meet her in, in 2015, no way. Carol Mortimer, um, at, at RWA in New York. Yeah. And we sat down and we talked for probably an hour um, about, you know, um, actually, ironically, uh, Alexis Hall um, and his book um for real, which then later, I guess the following year won won the Rita <laughs> um for erotic romance. Um so um and and talking with her about the shifts mm-hmm. in in romance over the years and how it went from heroine only point of view to both hero and heroine. Right. So that you no longer had these completely opaque heroes and you couldn't write a story that way anymore. Um and and the shifts that occurred, sort of in in her memory, that were outside of my experience,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and it led me to seek out other people. So, for example, like you know, Joanne Ross is another really good example. Somebody that I follow on Twitter, and we often have these kinds of conversations mm-hmm. about um, about you know how things how things were. <laughs> Um, and then also romance academia. Um, you know, there's uh, a number of people doing really interesting work. You know, Laura Vivanko's one, and Pamela Regis, uh,
0: Sarah Lyons, and Eric Salinger. I think Pam Regis is working on a history of the genre, like a book that is tracing the history of it. Of
1: of you. My understanding is it's U.S. romance right. specifically focused because a lot of the current histories, um, at least the academic histories or business histories, um, are really focus on, on more on Mills and Boons. Yes. They focus more on sort of the British side of public publishing before Harlequin bought Mills and Boone.
0: And it's, and it's interesting when you look at the sort of the 36,000 foot view, how many things uh, sort of jump out at you and how many things have changed. Like there used to be one way that you got to single title. There was a way. Right, got there. And there used to be a way to be published. You wrote a manuscript, then you wrote a query, then you sent it to an agent, then maybe you got an agent, then you sent it to a publisher, mm-hmm. and then you maybe you got a contract. And it was like, this is the steps that you follow. And now there's like 90 different ways to enter the market. And what I found so incredible is after you posted this thread, other people picked it up and added onto it paralleling other tr- other paths through the history of romance you have melissa blue writing the history of yes. black women and in romance and how not only was there, that was terrific oh my gosh it was so incredible because not only does she trace how yeah. harlequin bought arabesque from bet and then made it into kamani which was just shut down but the the names that came out of that line and then you have self-publishing, which is where especially marginalized writers have flourished. It, it, the, the, the next line that I, I'm really curious to see is if, if, because I cannot do this, so I find it so fascinating when people can, um, that you have the self-publishing fanfic Wattpad connection, which was then brought up by Mina V. Esguerra when she wrote about the, the Filipino timeline of romance. And now how Mm -hmm. how that was largely because publishers from the Philippines started pulling from Wattpad entire books and publishing them. I mean, it is fascinating Mm -hmm. to see how just in the last five years or 10 years, really, you have this changing path of how you get to how you get the book to the reader and where does the reader find the book it's It's incredible when you sort of plot all of that out. what have been some of the uh, th- of the things that have surprised you since you did this sort of tracing of of one line of of history
1: you know I think um one of the things that really jumped out at me um and I think I probably because I was looking at it sort of that through that lens of lgbtq mm-hmm. um, romance was just how recent that really is i mean i you know i I picked up Charlie all night by um by Jennifer Kruse, and I read that sort of over the last couple of days, because someone mentioned that there's a a gay character in it, Mm -hmm. um, who is, uh, in my my modern, you know, mind, now that I've read series with, you know, male, female, and male, male, and female, female romance, is sequel bait. I mean, he's brilliant. He's got this (laughs) weird quirk about the way he orders food. And he has this, you know, this random sort of relationship that doesn't go anywhere with this nobody named David that we never really get to know. But he just, he seemed like, oh, I want Joe's (laughs) H-E-A. And we'll never see it. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, but on the other hand, you get, you know, Suzanne Brockman, um, who, who, you know, started writing, I think just about the same time, maybe, you know, 1994. Mm -hmm. Um, or 1993 to, to Jennifer you know 1992. And, and frankly, some of her gay characters have
0: had HEAs yes. now. So that's, you know, that's fabulous. For me as a reader, Brockman was one of the first writers I read who took a secondary character coupling through multiple books. So you had a primary romance and then you had Sam and Alyssa in the background. And they, I believe, were interracial their romance was over. I want to say at least five books. I could very easily be wrong with that because five is a number and I'm terrible with those. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's it's almost like painful comedy when my kids come home with math homework and they're like, yeah, we're just going to wait for dad. And I'm like, yeah, you're making the right decision there, kids. Good job. Um, The the, she was one of the first writers I read who took a secondary couple's romance through several books in the backstory. So by the time they got their own romance, readers were like, oh my God, give it to us already. We're dying. And then she did that again with other characters and brought the gay characters into the from the background to the foreground. And I, I had not experienced that as yeah. a reader. And I'm not sure how many other readers ha- or other writers have done that. I also tend to suspect. That a lot of the hero point of view that sort of emerged in contemporary came out of a lot of Nora Roberts because she was also one of the earliest that I remember again, flawed perspective and limited, you know, view of history, who was writing whole chapters from the hero's point of view where it wasn't a guess. Like you spent more time with him than her sometimes.
1: No, that is true
0: of her earlier stuff. Yeah. So the the ways in which background characters move to the foreground is also so interesting. Um I love this thread so much because every time I read it, I think of something else, which of course made me want to like call you and be like, so how'd you do this in your brain? How does your brain do that? Can can that be taught? I don't think, I don't <laughs> think brains can be taught to do that. That's re- it's really extraordinary. Do, or do you want to do more historical threads? Gosh, you know, I, um, one of the things that happened,
1: I think when, when Mel posted her thread, which was, you, you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, is that, um. Uh, so one, the, one of the first things that she brought up was Vivian Stevens, who um, had been one of the founders of RWA in, in, in 1980, um, had been the editor of Dell Candlelight Ecstasy, which was the first category romance imprint to allow non-virgin heroes. Uh, heroines, mm-hmm. not heroes. Heroes cannot, Heroes don't have to be virgins. Um, but tend um, to get really excited when they are. <laughs> right. No, it's true. Um, that's one of my very favorite things. Um, but um, but <laughs> but what's interesting about that is that uh, Dell Candlelight Ecstasy is literally my favorite category romance imprint. It was, you know, Dell in the early 1980s. And um, and they're really hard to find, um, because most places oh, that even use bookstores... <laughs> that have you know most used bookstores that have um categories have harlequins or silhouettes they don't they don't break out all the old dell stuff um mm-hmm. and they're not available in ebook most of them so
0: no you know
1: they're really hard to find and vivian stevens i you know when we had that conversation i you know i pulled out a stack of the ones that i have um most notably at least for our purposes the one written by jane castle who's you know jane and Krenz now um And, um, and Amanda Quick, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, and there's uh, an an editor's note in the, in the front of, of Jane, uh, Jane Castle's second book um, from Vivian Stevens. She was her editor. She Mm -hmm. gave her her start. Um, And, and so I'd love to know more about her. And I know there, I mean, obviously, you know, there are people who knew her still still living and on Twitter, and I want to find out all about her. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, so so really sort of that line was particularly interesting to me, just because it intertwines so clearly with things that I know well and love, but just didn't know that mm-hmm. about. So, I mean, I I think I, I think I would um, like to, in fact, I was thinking kind of thinking maybe I'd, the thing is, my my blog is not really the the ideal place for for some of this information, which is why I ended up posting it on Twitter. I thought, do I find it what do I want to write a post? i d I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but just it just seemed like a strange place to put it. So I ended up, you know, catalog cataloging it all on Twitter. Um, so, you know, maybe. But Twitter's so ephemeral. And I think one of the things that makes me sad is that, you know, a lot of this, um a lot of this history uh gets lost. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, Sarah Craven, um, who was one of the sort of old category writers, passed away um, at the mm-hmm. end of last year. Um, and she'd been writing for Harlequin for 30 some odd years. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's that's going to be, you know, more and more common, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so, you know, I think having a place to actually preserve the history um, other than, you know, the very ephemeral Twitter would be Twitter. a really cool thing.
0: Yeah. I I agree. I also love the stories of how some of the books came to be published. It's often two women inside a larger house going, "Well, let's 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 do this and see if anyone really yells about it." That'll be good. An example. Well, I need an example of that. What's that? Okay, so in the book uh Publishing Romance: The History of an Industry, which is by I want to say it's not market, but it's very close. Mark Mark Kurt. I think is right.
1: Oh, yeah. Joseph Markert. Yeah. Markert. Yes. Right?
0: Okay. So yeah. um, he, he was writing about Jane Castle's Gentle Pirate and Vivian Stevens um, published it. And one of the things that, that was it, remarkable about the book was that the heroine um, had been abused by her deceased husband. And she published it, according to the book, by, and she said, because all of the things that are in it are right now the world today. And it sold out because, while well, people were gravitating towards it. Um, and then in the book, it says, there was no resistance at Dell to publishing these two titles under a new imprint, nor did Stevens, like Marianne Stewart at Playboy, have to pitch the novels. Quote, I went to my editor in chief, Kate Duffy, and said, I have two books that I think are better than the Harlequin Presents. What do you think? And she said, it's all right with me, but you should probably speak to the sales department. So I went down and spoke to one guy, Bob Avery, who was president of sales. And I said the magic words, I think I have something we can pit against Harlequin Presents. And he said, let's do it. It was that simple. So this massive thing happened because three people were like, all right, go talk to that dude. All right, dude says, cool, let's do it. Like, it was all, always, always, always like a, a conversation between a handful of people. And then this massively wonderful change happens in the genre that we love. It was fascinating. That's an amazing story. <laughs> this bu- This book is so – Publishing Romance, The History of an Industry is full of so many little interesting anecdotes. Like you said, the history that doesn't get recorded because – it really is sometimes a hey, let's uh, run up the flagpole, see who salutes kind of situation, which is kind of how I live my life. So I have a lot of response. I have a lot of respect for decisions that are made. Of okay, let's we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I I love that there's, I love that there's an interest in the history of the books that we love, especially because we're still always fighting the idea that romance as a genre doesn't have value and that it isn't a valid. Um, form of literature and that it's de- denigrated because of all of the reasons we're so familiar with. But the history of the women who produce it is also really interesting and doesn't get, doesn't get traced and plotted as much as I would love it to. And I wish that I had the skills to do it, at least. I, I wish that I had the ability to remember things like numbers and years and time but I am so grateful that you did this because it is still blowing my mind. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for this thread. It is incredible. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that by doing a podcast, I can, make, I can like preserve all of the links and make sure that people see it and sort of make it a bit more permanent in a way that allows you to talk about it. At least that's my goal here. Like I said, run it up the flagpole, see what happens. Well, I really
1: appreciate the chance to, to get on and talk about it, talk about this with you because, you know, you've obviously, when you, 13th year, I think I saw, yeah. is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, so, yeah
0: so you Still should be on that timeline local. somewhere, Sarah. I, every time I show up in a, in, a, in a timeline like that, I'm like, wait, really? Oh, holy crap. It has been a while. Because like I said very tenuous relationship with time. Every year the site anniversary comes around, I calculate it twice because I'm convinced that I'm wrong. Like, no way. It's not 13. Yeah, it's 13 years because my older son was born the same year as the website and he will be 13 this fall. Um, It takes a lot more time to generate a human than it does to create a blog. So (laughs) he and the site are almost the same age. And uh, yeah, it blows me away that that's a thing.
1: The history of, of romance, which you know, unfortunately, is I think it, to your point is is I, I don't I don't know if we call it marginalized, but at least in terms of um, in terms of publishing, it doesn't get a lot of respect.
0: No, um, not taken seriously. That
1: that, um, that you know, a lot of that history is um, sort of handed down from person to person. I mean, sure there are these you know some some books, but you can't encompass the entire experience of the romance genre in you know the two or three three or four histories of it that exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think, you know, um, having conversations like this and, and being able to, to talk about sort of some of the things that happened in the past and how they impact, you know, what's
0: happening now is, um, is interesting and important. I agree. I am so very glad you did this thread. And I'm, I'm glad that I was on Twitter at the right moment to see it. Because also the thing about Twitter is it goes by really quickly.
1: <laughs> it does, yeah. It was a pretty intense twenty-four hours. I
0: had a lot of, I had a lot of, uh, a lot of mentions. <laughs> yes, you did, which is so awesome. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. I want to thank Elizabeth Lane for being a guest on the show and for talking about this Twitter thread. It might seem strange to create a thread about uh romance history and then talk about it on a podcast but you know a lot of the discussion about romance takes place online in various ephemeral forms so I figure why not make this discussion happen in multiple places so thank you so much to Elizabeth you can find her online at cookingupromance.com which is romance reviews for food lovers um I I am I am one of those it is true so if you go to cookingupromance.com, you will find reviews and recipes. And I'll be honest with you, there's also food porn. There's a whole lot of food porn. So go do it. It's worth all of the hunger feelings. I now want donuts like you would not believe. <clears throat> okay. This podcast episode is brought to you by Grant Station. Are you passionate about a cause? Do you work with or support a nonprofit organization? You very well might because, as I've learned... Most nonprofit organization staff are women between the ages of 30 and 60, so this information may very well pertain to you in all sorts of professional development ways, so heads up. At GrantStation, we provide the tools for your nonprofit organization to find new grant sources, build a strong grant-seeking program, and write winning grant proposals. Do you struggle with identifying new funding sources? Let GrantStation do the preliminary work. They profile a wide range of funders that accept unsolicited requests, including foundations, corporate giving programs, faith-based grant makers, association grant programs, giving circles, and more. Does lack of time limit your ability to submit grant requests? We have tutorials on creating time and making space for your grant proposals. Do you have a grant strategy for 2018? Well, we offer a three-pronged approach to help you develop an overall strategic plan to adopting powerful grant-seeking programs. Uh, What's GrantStation, you might ask? I am glad you've asked because I am going to tell you. The GrantStation U.S. Charitable Giving Database was developed by grant seekers for grant seekers almost 20 years ago. The goal was and continues to be to offer a database that is carefully researched, easy to use, and continually updated Our narrative approach allows us to include nuanced details about each grantmaker's funding priorities, geographic focus, and application procedure, which sets us apart from other services, which tend to rely on data and statistics. Instead of combing through search results that include sources, which are by invitation only... GrantStation allows you to find the grant programs which best suit your organizational needs, including federal grant programs and sources that accept unsolicited letters of inquiry. GrantStation also welcomes you with a clean, user-friendly interface that quickly and easily brings you the information you need. Our job is to profile a wide range of grantmakers open to supporting the work that you do. Your job is to make sure you have access to those grantmakers. And as someone who used to work in nonprofits, like I worked for, I'm counting, uh, at least four in my employment history, Uh, this sounds amazing and I'd wish I'd had this, but I was working at a nonprofit. You can get an annual membership for just $159 and get funded with GrantStation. Memberships are actually a lot more, so $159 is a limited-time offer. Plus, you can receive our gift to you, free addition to Gene Block's classic webinar, 60-plus great fundraising ideas, in 90 minutes. You will be inspired, and you can learn more at grantstation.com. And thank you to GrantStation for sponsoring this episode. If you are new here, welcome. And if you are not, you know that every episode gets a transcript which is something I am deeply, deeply proud of and very grateful to every podcast transcript sponsor. Today's podcast transcript and all of the podcast transcripts are compiled by hand by Garlic Knitter, who is a professional transcriptionist. So I imagine all of this romance podcasting is a little bit different from the other things she normally does. Thank you, Garlic Knitter. Today's podcast transcript is brought to you by A Duke in the Night by Kelly Bowen. If you like Sarah McLean and Tessa Dare, you will love this Regency romance. August Faulkner has returned with his eye on expanding his business empire. He is a duke, a scoundrel, and a titan of business, and he wears his roguish reputation as a badge of honor. Clara Hayward is a respected headmistress and is above reproach. But 10 years ago, she shared a scandalous waltz with August and, despite herself, has never forgotten the feeling of his arms. Can these opposites find a second chance at romance? RT Book Reviews raves what a way to start the Devils of Dover series. A Duke in the Night by Kelly Bowen is on sale now wherever books are sold. You can find out more at kellybowen.net or forever-romance.com. And I will have links to this book in the podcast entry in the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. We also have a podcast Patreon, and I would like to tell you about it for just a few minutes. Your support of the show means the world to me. And every time I get a new notification that someone has signed on as a Patreon uh, sponsor, I am deeply, deeply grateful. If you have a look at patreon.com slash you can make a monthly pledge for as little as a dollar a month, and you make a massive, deeply appreciated difference to help the show continue and to help me commission transcripts for past episodes. I also want to thank some of the Patreon folks personally. So thank you to Savannah, Andrea, Erica, Darlene, Hannah, and Anna. Thank you for being part of the community. I also turn to that community when I want questions for upcoming interviews or when I have news that I'm excited to share. So if you join the Patreon community, there's little extras in the feed for you as well. Are there other ways you can support the podcast? Of course. If you are putting the podcast in your eardrums right now, thank you. You can leave a review wherever you listen or however you listen. You can tell a friend, you can subscribe or keep putting us in your eardrums because that is amazing. Thank you so much for hanging out with us each week. The music you're listening to is brought to you by Sassy Outwater, and I'm told there has been additional assistance from Ferdinand, the seeing-eye dog, or guide dog. I'm not sure if seeing-eye dog is the correct term. Ferdinand, the awesome dog. We have been playing tracks from the Pete Fairies live album, Live at 25, and it is a seriously fun album. The spoken parts, which I tend to cut out because it's hard for me to talk on top of someone else talking, it becomes very difficult to understand. Um, that part is very fun. This track is called Spiders, and you can find it on Live at 25, available at Amazon or iTunes, and you can find the Peat Bog Fairies at their website, peatbogferries.com. Coming up on the site this week, we have Cover Awe, which is when we look at covers that we really, really like and admire and talk about them a lot. Elise will also have a recap of the Bachelor finale. You do not want to miss that because she's got some high-grade sarcasm. We also have help a bitch out requests, new reviews, and a reader request for romances that take place while someone is traveling. I hope you will stop by smartbitchestrashybooks.com and hang out with us. And of course, in the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast, I will have links to all of the Twitter threads that we talked about, the episode with Mina via if you'd like to listen to that, and additional links for your own interest and research, should you be interested. I will also have links to the books that we mentioned. And of course, links where you can find Elizabeth. And now it is time for the terrible joke that ends each episode because I am a horrible person. Are you ready? Okay. Why did the chef of the Death Star measure everything in cups and teaspoons? Give up? Why did the chef aboard the Death Star measure everything in cups and teaspoons? Because they only use imperial units. (laughs) 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 That's so bad. (laughs) Okay. All right, I'm going to put myself together. So on behalf of Elizabeth and everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a great weekend and we will see you in here next week.